The text which I've just read is our sermon text for this evening. When we think of the great men and women of world history, the men and women of renown and triumph and reputation, great leaders and generals, kings and queens and presidents, we often call to mind names like Alexander, aptly called Alexander the Great, Winston Churchill, Cleopatra, Saladin, Julius Caesar, Charlemagne, Napoleon, Joan of Arc, George Washington, Constantine. We remember these men and women for their military successes, their conquests and conflicts. We celebrate them for their accomplishments in government and also in rule. We admire them. We call them great for their prowess, their power, their wisdom and might. Greatness in the eyes of the world is a reputation which is earned by triumph. Yet even a top Time magazine's list of the world's 100 most influential people, there rests at the very top, not one who came to conquer through might and power, through domination and subjugation, but one who triumphed through suffering and humiliation and the laying down of his life for the sake of those who were putting him to death. I am amazed that even our secular world can admit that history's most influential figure is Jesus Christ. And yet, Christ cannot be placed in the same category as the rest of the men and women that we remember from our history. Why? Because the greatness of Christ is not measured in the same way that the greatness of these men and women is The greatness of Christ is not measured by military strategies or how he ruled over earthly kingdoms. It's not measured in political maneuvers and strategies. But the greatness of Christ is measured by the depth of his love and obedience. It is measured in the immeasurable lengths that he went to. The great chasm which he endeavored to cross to reconcile sinful man and holy God. His greatness is a love and obedience which compelled him to go to a most brutal death, but for the joy of accomplishing salvation. This is the great irony of our ages, that Christ is great, not in the eyes of the world, not in the ways of the world, but Christ is great by way of sacrifice. Christ triumphed by sacrifice. We know that Christ was not great in the eyes of the world. The prophet Isaiah tells us this, does he not? He says that Jesus was lowly and despised in the eyes of men, that he had no form, he had no majesty, that we should look at him and admire him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. When I hear those words, I'm reminded of the account of the anointing of King David In 1 Samuel chapter 16. For there we see the contrast between the world's expectations of greatness. Even a prophet of God's expectation of greatness. And greatness as it is defined by the Lord himself. For it was not the eldest of Jesse's sons. 
was not the most powerful, the most glorious, who were deserving of kingship, but it was little David, shepherd of the field, last in line, least deserving of the title and office of of king by worldly standards, not powerful, not glorious in appearance. No one would pick him first to be king. Yet we're told that the Lord sees, not as man sees. Why? Because man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. Christ was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was lowly. He was despised in the eyes of the world. Yet the Lord saw in Christ his own heart, a heart of perfect love and obedience. Christ was not great in the eyes of the world. He was not a king who rides in among his people robed in fine colors and fabrics to be showered with the gold of conquered nation, but a king who rides in on a donkey's colt to the waving of palm branches. And yet even as that, that donkey's colt trod across the stones, we're told that even those stones recognized that he was worthy of worship. Now, I've thought about that phrase for some time where Jesus says that if those crying out praise to him at that moment were silent, that even the stones would cry out. And I I wonder if perhaps it's given to us to show that even the creation, the very stones recognized their maker, perhaps even better than the people who were welcoming Christ into Jerusalem because they were crying, Hosanna, hail to the Son of David, but creation proclaims, hail to the Son of God, the one through whom and by whom all things were made. Perhaps even as the people and the disciples themselves, as we heard this morning, struggled to deal with their expectations of what a king should look like, what a king should do, how a king should conquer, how a king should enter a city. Even at that moment, the rocks knew and understood and were ready to cry out at a word from their king. They knew he was worthy of worship. And so he is. So he was. So he is. So will he ever be worthy of worship. Worthy of worship is the God who did not grasp at heavenly glory did not grasp at heavenly authority, but was willing to submit himself to the plan of the Father, was willing to be humbled, taking on the form of a servant, taking on the form and likeness of this flesh, creator becoming as the creature, so as to reconcile the creature to creator. Worthy of worship for his perfect and perpetual obedience, even unto death. Worthy of worship for, although he was innocent, Declared innocent by God. Declared innocent by the courts of men who unjustly condemned him to die. Though he was innocent, he did not plead on his behalf. For that he's worthy of worship. But he's also worthy of worship because he was, even at that moment, and is and will ever be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And yet he laid aside that royal crown. Why? Because of that great hymn says... For my soul. He laid aside his royal crown and took upon his head a crown of thorns. What wondrous love is this 
that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse? The answer is, for my soul. This is salvation by sacrifice. This is triumph through suffering. This is the greatness of Christ displayed. And it is a greatness that the world, even then and today, struggles to comprehend. And we we would even say can't comprehend. Because it is a degree of love that the world can't know apart from Christ. There's none. There's no human who, apart from the Spirit of Christ, could love in the way that Christ did. Who could endure such suffering? For nothing that they had done in themselves, who could endure such injustice and not retaliate? Who could bear the heavy weight of sin? The answer is none of us. Who could do so perfectly? None but Christ. And all for those who did not deserve the mercy being shown to them. Which of the great men and women that line that list of Time magazine's 100 most influential people could ever or did ever make a sacrifice as great as that? None. There is only Christ. And yet rather than worship him for the immensity of this wondrous love displayed in sacrifice, what did the people do? They do as the world does today. They mocked him, they reviled him, they spat upon him and cursed him. Verse 29 says that those even who passed by, that is those who were not participating in what was going on, those who passed by on the road for no other reason than but to scorn and scoff at him, derided him from afar. And not just that, but we see also the chief priests and the scribes, they mocked him to one another. The influential people of that age mocking Jesus in his death. And we see also that those crucified on either side of him also reviled him. And so the cacophony of noise that surrounded Jesus at the height of this incredible sacrifice was not the sound of applause and adoration and worship, but the cries and bitter jeers of insult. Because his was a greatness that they could not comprehend. His was a greatness that breaks our earthly paradigms of what greatness is. In the eyes of the world, victory is accomplished by self-exaltation. It's accomplished, triumph is accomplished by, by domination, by subjugating people under you. It's accomplished by self-preservation, not by humiliation. And so if Jesus was truly God, and if He was truly a King that was worthy of worship in their minds, then He would demonstrate that power by smiting His enemies, not by being killed by them. They expected the victory and triumph of Christ to be demonstrated in the destruction of those who oppose God. And so they supposed, if Christ is King, and if He is to be our King, then that power and that worthiness of kingship would be demonstrated in Christ's destruction of their enemies. And who was their enemies? It was the Romans. But what they did not realize was that they themselves were the very enemies of God. They wanted destruction. What they didn't realize is what they wanted was destruction for themselves as the very enemies of God standing at that moment that they were crucifying Him under the just wrath of God. 
And this is here another great irony of the crucifixion story, which we see here, that even as they stood at the foot of the cross mocking Christ, they did not realize that the death that he was suffering very visibly and violently in front of them was a death that is specifically and justly, rightly reserved for those who are enemies of God, which they were. They were the enemies of God, whom by worldly standards Christ should have destroyed, crushed. Yet instead, because of the sacrifice of Christ, the heavy hand of God's wrath was stayed against them, even as it fell upon his own head. They call out in mockery and in foolish ignorance. He saved others. He cannot save himself. But what they did not understand was that he was saving them by not saving himself. And he did so willingly. And here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as a flood for We see here Christ, our ransom, shedding for us his precious blood. This is greatness, measured by a depth of love and obedience that the world, apart from Christ, cannot know. Like those crowded around the cross of Christ in that day, brothers and sisters, we are gathered around, and by the light of God's word, are here seeing the Son of Man lifted up for our sake so that we too might witness His death. But not just witness it. Realize that the death that He died, most brutally, most violently, was the death that we deserved as the enemies of God. Can we for a moment stand together at the foot of the cross and behold our Savior there? Can we... Look at the death that we deserved. As uncomfortable as it is to think that someone should be killed for our sake, as uncomfortable as it is to imagine Christ's bleeding body there, half naked upon the tree, can we for a moment look upon Him to realize that that's what we deserved? For we too were once the enemies of God which by worldly standards of kingship meant that Christ should have come to destroy us. We too, and not long ago for some of us, were enemies of God. Justly deserving of the wrath of God, dead and dying in trespasses and sins. Sins which rise up like the mocking voices of the crowd in that day to deride the authority of God, to rage and to plot against God's authority and to say together like those of Psalm 2, let us cast His bonds from us. Let us break them apart in opposition to the King. Sins which in great ignorance blinded us to the reality that were it not for the blood of Christ, it would be our blood that was required. Can we see tonight, by the light of amazing grace, can we see that Christ died for us at that moment? Christ died for those mockers, those scoffers like you and I at that moment. While we were still enemies, Romans reads to us, while we were still dead in sin, 
unable to rouse ourselves unto life, while we were still weak and enemies of God, at that time, when the fullness of time had come, Christ to fulfill the plan of the mystery of the ages, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, which is you and me. For this is how God shows His love. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we mocked, while we derided, while we blasphemed, still Christ died for us. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree, amazing pity and grace unknown, love beyond degree. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Lord, dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes in tears. Yet know that drops of grief can never repay the debt that we owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Jesus paid it all. All to Him we owe. I have said to you this evening that true greatness, the true greatness of Christ is measured by the degree of His sacrifice. It is measured by the immensity of His love and obedience in that sacrifice. But likewise, brothers and sisters, the greatness of our lives is measured by the degree to which we are faithful to Christ. The degree to which we love Christ with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we can promise you that that kind of whole being faithfulness means, it entails, it requires, it involves sacrifice. It means hating, despising the life which the world offers and taking instead a cross upon your own shoulders. It means self-denial in the midst of a world which proclaims self-fulfillment and selfishness. Let us not fall into the snare which is so captivating that what we have to achieve here on earth is to leave behind some sort of personal legacy. If true greatness is measured by the degree to which we are faithful to Christ then it cannot also be measured by earthly reputation. It cannot be remembered by how many years the world will remember our names. And the author of Ecclesiastes tell us, tells us it won't be more than a few generations before they forget your face and your name. The greatness of our lives cannot be measured by the expanse of our earthly kingdoms, castles of sand that we labor so hard to build before the waves come to knock them down. 
Our greatness is not measured by the books we write, the sermons we preach, not by the possessions we gain or the wealth that we accrue, not by the meaningful careers that we labor in. Let us not, brothers and sisters, seek glory in those things where they are fleeting and even now are passing away and the world with it. But let us instead believe and live by the knowledge that true greatness in us is measured by the degree to which Christ is visible in and through us. Let us live for the sake of proclaiming Christ in all that we do and say and think. Let us take joy in recognizing that all the good we do, all the good we're required to do, is not us, but Christ at work in us. This so that we cannot boast in ourselves, even if we wanted to. The good that we do, the faithful things that we do, it's not by our own power. It's by the strength of Christ, the power of Christ in us, so we cannot boast. And this is indeed our hope. This drives us on in life, knowing that our labor is not in vain. This helps us to be, as Paul commands us to be, steadfast and immovable. Why? Because we know that we do so by the power of Christ in us. Do we not confess it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us? To the praise and glory of God. To paraphrase a convicting modern Preacher and pastor Paul Washer, he says this, There are no great men and women. There is only a great God and Savior. There are no great men and women. There is only a great God and Savior. And how great indeed. Have you seen it tonight? How great His mercy, how wonderful His loving kindness, how amazing His grace We sing it so often, but do we believe it? How amazing is grace that he would die to save a wretch, a scoffer, a blasphemer, a sinner like me and you. And how wondrous, how magnificent his power to turn our blasphemy to praise. And so I ask you, challenge you, in the spirit of what we've heard this morning and now are hearing again, if the message wasn't clear the first time, hear it the second time, will you, Christian, answer the call to lay down your life for the sake of the gospel? Just as Christ once laid down His life for you. A love so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul and my life And my all, Christian, are you willing to give your all? May we answer that demand by the giving up of our whole lives, following in the spirit of Christ, our Lord and Savior, who triumphed by sacrifice, who rests atop Times, magazines, 100 most influential people, not because he conquered through might and power and subjugation, but because he conquered through humility And sacrifice. That sacrifice is required of us. And the great irony is that it is by the sacrifice of our lives that the gospel goes to both neighbors and nations. 
It is the self-denial that the world doesn't understand but peers in to see people who are not concerned with their lives but are concerned instead with pouring out all that they are in love and obedience. A love and obedience that makes them wonder where does that come from? This is the great irony of the ages. That Christ will be made known in the earth not by strength or domination. Not by our taking over of governments. Not by the institution of the way we would like things to be. But Christ will be made known in this earth by those who count their lives as nothing. Compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus and the surpassing privilege of making him known. For we never can prove the delight of his love until all on the altar we lay. Brothers and sisters, lay your lives on the altar of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we give ourselves away. Tis all that we can do. When shown such wondrous love, when made to see such sacrifice, our only response can and should be complete devotion, praise, wonder, awe. Father, we thank you for Christ. And we thank you for the love of God in him poured out on Calvary's hill, spilt on a cursed tree for our sake. O Lord, help us to live and walk in the spirit and power of Christ, giving up ourselves, hating this life by the honoring of Christ's life. May we do so in the knowledge and strength that it is Christ who is in us, And it is by Christ in us that we will triumph until we reach our heavenly home. Our pilgrim days are swiftly passing away. But while we are here, there's much work to be done. Help us, Lord, in the spirit and power of Christ to be steadfast and immovable, always working for the sake of Christ, knowing that in him our labor is not in vain. We pray this. In the name of our King, the Lord of Lords, King of all kings, in the name of true greatness, Christ Jesus. Amen.